This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. We all have that teacher, the one you'll never forget. That English teacher who introduced you to your favorite authors. That band conductor who gave you your musical voice. That drama professor who set you free. From Dead Poets Society to Mona Lisa Smile to Stand and Deliver, this teacher is a standard in movies, books, and stories. On this week's Second Story podcast, Denise Santina Ruiz remembers these teachers, the ones who formed her into the strong, independent female she is today. This story was performed at Webster's Wine Bar in April of 2013. The theme of the evening was born into this, stories of where we come from. With her story titled The Miseducation of Denise Ruiz, Second Story is proud to present Denise Santina Ruiz. Growing up, we moved around a lot. Changing neighborhoods and rent prices had our family relocating about every two years between Wicker Park and Humble Park. During these relocations, my father enrolled my brother, sister, and me in at least three different Catholic schools for our, grad, our grade school years. He felt that if we were gonna get any chance in this life, we had to go to where the Blancos were taught. We couldn't go to public schools where being brown, as he remembered, rendered you to the special education class, where teachers treated you like an alien life force unable to communicate with earthlings. At 10 years old, I was a skinny leg girl in a plaid jumper dress surrounded by mostly brown and black kids and white teachers at Our Lady of Grace. Most of the teachers were scowling nuns who didn't wax their upper lips, so I would find myself staring at the fuzz above their mouth whenever they came close to me. I was in fourth grade, and Sister Frances was a particularly angry nun who one morning taught a history course in which she called Native Americans savages. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't remember her history lesson, but I remember that word and how it crept into the lineage of my skin like a parasite. When I told my father, he became enraged and began telling me another kind of history, a history of First Nations people, including the Taino Indians that came from our ancestry in Puerto Rico. We were driving in my father's 1973 red and white Thunderbird and he kept looking back at me through the rearview mirror and hitting the steering wheel to drive his points home. It was still nice enough in Chicago to have the windows down and my hair kept flying into my face as I tried to keep focus on his teaching. Do you know we come from the Indians? From Taino, Arawak people who existed long before invasion. Do you know we had our own language, our own customs and ceremonies? People who call Native American savages only do so because they're ignorant, mija, racist. I didn't have time, I didn't dare interrupt him to ask what racist meant. <laughs> I simply nodded and allowed him to continue. The savages came later with bolts and chains. You tell her that, he said, hitting the steering wheel. Tell her Columbus didn't discover shit. <laughs> he laughed in that way angry people do when their emotions get all confused and come out the wrong filter. <laughs> yeah. My eyes popped open, my, my mouth hung aghast. My father looked through the rearview mirror. His eyes became clearer as though he finally realized he was speaking to a 10-year-old child. Okay, maybe don't say shit. But she was wrong. I looked out the window and at that moment, the world began to shift. A seedling in the artery of my consciousness was planted. 
With newfound knowledge and insight, I began excitedly challenging Sister Francis's context and demanded that we be taught other kind of history. Why can't we learn about our country, Sister Francis? I asked defiantly. I suggested getting info on Latin American countries since most of the students were Latinos. Sister Francis looked exasperated and annoyed. <laughs> Each time my hand shot up, I was a subversive, an ignited rebellion. Her solution was to do a geography map naming capitals of the states in the US and threw in Puerto Rico free of charge. <laughs> she asked the class while eyeing me, who knows the capital of Puerto Rico? I raised my hand and she nodded for me to go to the board. I jumped up and wrote in Ponce, because that was where my family resided and where your family is from always feels like the capital of a country. <laughs> she mocked me and told the class, that's wrong. The capital of Puerto Rico is San Juan, not Pons. I was humiliated. It was the first time I realized I didn't know much about who I was or where I came from. It was also the first time a teacher told me to shut up without ever having to utter that phrase. I went through school flying under the radar. Nothing stuck to me or felt relevant. Though the kids were Latino, they were mostly from Mexico and Guatemala. I didn't see Puerto Ricans until my parents bought their first home and we moved back to Humble Park. All the teachers were white up until this point, except when I began sixth grade. At St. Mark's, and my teacher was Mr. Villalobos. Now, even though Mr. Villalobos was as Boricua as they get, he told everyone he was Sicilian. <laughs> but we knew he was one of us. <laughs> he sat in the front of the class with a toothpick in his mouth and cursed when we got on his nerves. He had short cropped curly hair that would sometimes grow into a small afro in between haircuts and didn't walk like all the te other teachers, you know, all fast paced and stiff bodied. Instead, he walked with a slight swagger. His shoulders were lax. He had thick lips and that would curl in contempt when he felt you were bullshitting him about why you didn't do his, you, your homework. Mr. Villalobos wasn't married, or at least we didn't think so. Teachers had no romantic lives in our minds. But he came to school and just rolled out of bed khakis and loose ties, so we assumed he wasn't taken care of. Either way, he was attentive and challenging. Once in a parent-teacher meeting, I sat there feeling embarrassed because I had gotten a C in English. My parents nodded in agreement as he explained to them that I was an A-B student easily, but lacked discipline and always did enough just to get by. I would frustrate him in class because I would hide under my potential, he'd say. He liked to play mock courtroom lessons, which he felt helped us think critically about facts and truth while also encouraging our ability to speak in public. In one particular lesson, I was playing lawyer to Yvette, the pretty Puerto Rican girl with a head of curls and a big smile. I was to defend her in what was an obvious case of mistaken identity. I excitedly got my argument together, wrote down facts, and conferred with my clients. Mr. Villalobos asked for opening statements and then had the prosecution call Raul as the first witness. His answers threw me off. My palms began to sweat and my heart began to thump like a gavel inside my chest. I was called to cross-examine. I froze and then uttered slowly, no questions at this time, Your Honor. <laughs> Yvette whipped her head at me and said, huh? <laughs> Mr. Villalobos shook his head and said, bad move, D. I felt my whole body shrinking and tears began to form in my eyes. Yvette clicked her tongue, shot her, shot her hand in the air and quickly be and, be and began speaking before Mr. Villalobos could nod. 
can I get a new lawyer, please? <laughs> Later, Mr. Villalobos asked me what happened. I shrugged, looked down at my Payless ballet slippers. They were my favorite. All the girls wanted them. I felt like a ballet dancer gracefully gliding through the hallways, pirouetting through my adolescent existence. They were supposed to be my magic shoes. But a look closer, one could see the pleather unraveling at the seams, and the tip of the toe was worn even after I had colored them in with black marker to keep them looking perfect. They were imitation shoes. No prima ballerina would be caught on stage with them. I don't know, I finally replied. I just got so nervous. My voice felt shaky. I didn't want to look dumb in front of everyone, I confessed. Mr. Villalobos, never one to stroke a tender ego, tilted his head and said, and so what if you're nervous? You think I wasn't nervous when I began teaching? You think I wasn't nervous to be in the front of the class with all you brilliant, smart-ass kids? I felt myself smirk. I always smirked when Mr. Villalobos cursed. <laughs> felt so rebellious, so unteacher-like. Of course I was, he continued, but you gotta push through that. Even if your voice shakes, you still have to use it or else you'll never be heard. But Mr. Villalobos, you don't understand. The, the kids will make fun of me and he cut me off and you'll survive. Stop playing weak, D. Use your words and who gives a shit what anyone thinks? Sister Frances, with her upright religiosity and humiliation, taught me that my history was filled with savagery and contempt. She shut me down and tried to snuff my fire. But Mr. Villalobos, with his disheveled, cussing, Sicilian, burly, Boricua, burly self, taught me the power of my voice. He challenged me to crawl through the shell of charred self-esteem, and another seed began to grow. And then just like that, things shifted. During eighth grade, my parents split, and the next few years were a blur. As we were thrust, like many kids are, in the battlefield of scorned mothers and guilty fathers. During this time, they both began new families, and I attended a high school on the north side called Mather, while I was immediately culture-shocked. I floated through my classes, uninspired, unhappy. I filled a lot of subjects and would journal incessantly. In my English classes, I learned the poetry of great white men and women, the classics they were called. But their language felt nothing like mine. Their poems were baroque and formal. They sounded like puffed up chests, while mine spoke slang, had an accent like Cortez Street and looked split down the middle like my family. I wrote my own poems. I showed them to certain students who then commissioned me to write one for them and pay me a dollar for each. I flunked out my senior year, and my father frantically tried to figure out a solution to my schooling. All his years of working three jobs to send us to private school would not be in vain. I enrolled in a startup alternative school where the problem kids go. All the teachers were young, of color, passionate. I hated it. I stayed to myself and looked down my nose at the dropout neighborhood school kids. I didn't belong with them, is what I thought. I knew they came with a suitcase load of stereotypes and I wanted none of it, not even a carry-on. I didn't want to see myself in what was deemed as the throwaways. I remember my English teacher breaking down in tears one day during class out of sheer frustration and with the apathy of the students and our unwillingness to read the required stories. You all don't understand, he said between sobs, how much you have the power to change your reality, how much you can do if you just stop believing that this is it. He waved his hands around his head. I love you all. 
I want you to succeed, but you have to want it too. Some kids shifted in their seats, uncomfortable. Some kept their eyes down and doodled on the desk while others smirked, whispered to their friends what a pussy he was. I couldn't keep my eyes off him. I observed his slouched shoulders, his bifocal glasses he took off to wipe his eyes with a tissue, the patches of sweat beneath his arms. His desk was empty except for his attendance book and half the class's wrinkled homework papers. One of the kids, Angel, finally broke the tension. Man, don't cry. It's just, <laughs> reading is boring. It's like sometimes I like it, but most times I don't really care. It ain't telling me nothing I need when I go out there, you know what I'm saying? The class seemed to nod in unison, and then a girl named Tati spoke up. Yeah, it's true, and I like reading, believe it or not. I hand in my homework, but you know, I do it because I have to, because I want to graduate and be something better for my daughter, but damn, it's, I can't like, I don't know how to say it, relate. I said out loud, surprised by my own voice. I saw the teacher stood up for the first time, like a light switch went off. The next week, I walk into my English class, and the teacher had about 15 to 20 books sprawled out on the desk and told us to choose which one we wanted. The whole class seemed to roll their eyes and slowly went up. Immediately, a buzz began to emanate within the group. I scanned the books and noticed almost all the authors were Latino, men and women with their own stories, with names that felt like my neighbors back in the day. It was like my heart began to beat again. I picked up the books, flipping through the pages, looking at the covers, the back, the beginning paragraphs. Some of the books were even from the teacher's own personal library at home. I saw Angel grab B.D. Thomas's Down These Mean Streets and immediately begin reading. I started with the same and never stopped. I never knew Latinos wrote books. <laughs> I knew we could tell good stories. We are a community of orators and dichos for days. But published books? In all my years of schooling, I had never read one story by Latinos for Latinos. Even Mr. Villalobos never veered from the textbook of the bland. I read everything. I went to the bookstore with intention. I scavenged the names on shelves until I came to ones that looked like home. I read it all from Julia Alvarez to Esmeralda Santiago. I discovered Juno Diaz, Abraham Rodriguez, and fell in love with the stories of Sandra Cisneros who talked about where she came from, and for the first time, I saw myself in that place. I recognized that place. It felt like a place I belonged. And the world opens and let me in a little more after every story. And after every story, I let the world in. Some teachers teach facts, and some lead you to your place of truth. Some will shut off your light, while others will help you find your way out of silence. And some teachers, the best ones, I think, will hold up a mirror and reflect back to you your own beautiful identity, lead you to navigate the lines of your face in history. I don't remember that teacher's name, but I remember his lesson. And the seed that was sown before I stopped watering finally sprouted within me, rooted in books. That was Denise Santina Ruiz. This story was curated by Jessica Young with a sound design from Nick Kawahara and performance direction from Julian Stroop. 
Second Story is more than just a podcast. It's a live and immersive story power experience. Check out our next live event in the Chicago area, September 8th and 9th at Webster's Wine Bar in Lincoln Park. The theme of the evening is Eye of the Storm, Stories of Chaos and Calm. For tickets or for more information, check out our website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. If you enjoyed this Second Story podcast, we hope you'll consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes to help more story enthusiasts connect with the power of Second Story. Second Story podcasts are funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Grants, the Arts Works Fund, and the Chicago Community Foundation. This podcast was produced by Eric Hazen. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story. <laughs>